0: Stop, stop, said about stop, stop, said. Yeah, can't get enough. Stop, said, love, said, stop, said. Hey, Greg! Surprise, surprise! A blast from the past. It's Flo Steinberg. You're around the corner neighbor friend um well i i you popped into my mind and um i walk by your building all the time and it's way past time i called to say hey how are you doing Um,
1: hey everybody this is stuff said with greg shegel i am greg shegel and on this show i talk to People in the worlds of comics, cartooning, and beyond, or sometimes I just talk about comics, or sometimes I talk about people in comics. In this episode, I will be doing the latter of all that latter. This episode is going to be about Flo Steinberg, whose voice you just heard in that little uh, voicemail. Uh, A year ago this month, in July of 2017, Flo Steinberg passed away. Flo, for whoever doesn't know, uh, is mostly known as uh, Stan Lee's secretary at the beginning of Marvel Comics in the 60s. She is widely regarded as a legendary figure in the comics industry, one of the original Marvel bullpen. I was lucky enough to meet Flo when I was an intern at Marvel back in 1996, and my impression of her then, with her small stature, gray hair, kindly manner... Just a very sweet sweet lady Was that of a kindly old lady uh, Who showed a genuine interest In all of us goofy interns She would She talked to us Like we were real people Not to say nobody else did But she had a way about her And then I remember one day As an intern I heard her talking to someone About Having gone to see Or going to see A Prince concert And I thought Huh Uh, This is no ordinary old lady. She's going to Prince concerts. Of course, at that time, she was all of around 56, 57 years old. Uh, Hardly an old lady, as uh, I am only 14 years younger than that now. Um, But I was barely 21 at the time, and what did I know from anything? I was an idiot. I did work again with Flo when I was an assistant editor. At Marvel, she was the proofreader on staff. Uh, She handed everybody photocopies of what proofreader marks looked like. She would proofread all the comics, of course, and the letters pages, which we uh, assistants, for the most part, were writing. Um, And as it happens, uh, once I left Marvel, um, I would still see Flo because Flo and I were neighbors, as you heard in that voicemail. Uh, We lived barely two blocks away from one another. And on occasion, as happens when people are neighbors, we would, I mean, it wouldn't happen all the time, but it happened enough where it it was an occasion. I would, we'd run into each other on the street and she would maybe be out having a cigarette or waiting for a bus or going to the post office. I'd be going to the gym or going to the post office or what have you. And, uh, we'd run into each other. She would greet with a kiss Smek on the lips as Flo did she would ask about my family in Florida she would ask about former people at Marvel that I was still in touch with um and if we were heading the same direction we would we would walk together Uh, when I started this show back in 2011 I always had it in my mind to have Flo on as a guest I thought it would be great to talk to her about everything um but more, more to the fact, at the time, the show Mad Men was on about offices in New York in the 60s, and I'm like, this is what I want to talk to Flo about. What was it like to be in office in the 60s? Forget the Marvel part of it, just the, the, the life of it, as, it really, as compared to Mad Men. Uh, but when I finally asked her about doing it, she explained that she was tired of talking about those days, specifically talking about Marvel and Stan and her time there and all that stuff. She didn't want to do another interview. She did, however, say she'd be happy to have lunch, so we had lunch. And at that lunch, I got to ask her all my questions about what it was like being a young woman working in the early 60s in Manhattan, how it compared to what I was seeing on Mad Men. And uh, by her explanation, it was not like that at all for her, at the very least. Um, she would call me, as you heard in those in that voicemail uh, from time to time to check in we would chat about the neighborhood restaurants that opened or closed Um, we both went to the same barbershop until I started cutting my own hair what's left of it and of course as it happens when you can no longer speak to someone you think about the things you never got to say I specifically remember walking by that barbershop and seeing it had changed its name clearly uh, there were new owners the 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 two brothers that worked there weren't there, and I meant to call Flo to talk about that, and I didn't. Or there was a day last summer, 2017, where it was brutally hot, and I thought to myself as I was walking in the heat, I should call Flo when I get home and check on her. And of course I didn't. And it wasn't long after that thought that I'd learned that Flo had passed away, and obviously you you immediately think, like, oh... I was just, I was just thinking about her. I was just gonna call. I was gonna call, and uh, there's a very good chance that she was already in the hospital when I had that thought. And it's one of those weird things you can do in your brain, and you think about, oh, the energies in the air, or whatever. Um, but really, what it comes down to is, is that cliche of uh, not taking every opportunity before there are no more opportunities. Um, I am glad for the opportunities I had. The lunches I had, the the bump-ins on the street, working with her at Marvel. And as opportunities go, while Flo never wanted to do a Stuff Said episode interview, uh, she did participate in a different interview in 2004. In 2004, Brian Smith, Smitty, who has appeared on this very show a number of times, and Craig Chin, who you've heard for 68 episodes at the beginning of every show as the composer and performer of the Stuff Said theme song, those two guys embarked on a project to make a film about women in comics. Spoiler alert, this film uh, did not happen. However, they did record a bunch of footage, and their first footage they recorded was an interview with Flo. The interview was, was uh, conducted by James Felder, a former Marvel editor who worked with Flo in the 90s, or mid to late 90s, yeah, the 90s. Um, we all knew each other. People gathered at my apartment, we sat down, the interview ran for as long as it ran. Uh, I had thought a number of times through the years of using that audio from that interview as a Stuff Said episode, but then I was like, oh, let me ask Flo, and then she didn't want to do it, and I'm like, okay, one of these days I'll use that audio, and well, after Flo died, it seemed all the more relevant. I had this interview, um, and I didn't get to it. I didn't get to it in July. ...of 2017. And then in October of 2017... ...there was a memorial for Flo... ...which was a lovely afternoon... ...of old friends and co-workers... ...paying tribute. People gave really lovely... um, ...I guess eulogies is the word... ...but just they told stories about Flo... ...and they were terrific. And I thought when I left that... like ...I should really put that episode together... ...and talk about the memorial... ...and what people said... ...and I didn't. Uh, In Jewish tradition a funeral happens very quickly after someone dies, within days followed by a period of mourning referred to as sitting Shiva at the burial site on the day of the funeral uh, there is no headstone the body is laid to rest, but there is no headstone there is no uh, marker of, of, of note uh, it isn't until the following year and a ceremony called an unveiling I'm sure there's a Hebrew name for it that I don't know but in my family we always called it an unveiling, uh, that the headstone or other marking is placed at the grave and shown to those who gather for that affair. Uh, Flo Steinberg passed away a year ago this month, and in the spirit of uh, that one year passing and an unveiling, uh, I've pieced together the audio from 2004. I've cut it up a little bit. I've moved it around. In the interview, uh, James was not mic'd, so a lot of his questions aren't really audible or not audible in a way that sounds good for this purpose. So I've cut around them. I'm going to introduce sections, uh, and you'll hear what Flo had to say in, in 2004. So uh, please enjoy.
0: is my better son. <laughs>
1: not, not this.
0: I haven't had any work done yet, you know. <laughs> so I tend to keep my chin up. Does it sound okay? Sound coming through okay? Tell me too loud. Too.
1: So that was just a little bit of flow before the actual interview began uh, reacting to camera set up and the mic's being plugged in uh now we're going to move into a series of clips where james uh, asked flo how she got her job uh followed by just conversation about the offices in general how they changed the the layout of things things like that so here's a series of clips of her discussing that over the years that she was uh, at marvel
0: completely um, happenstance serendipity or whatever Um, I came to New York in 63 uh, and um, started job hunting and at that time everything was done through agencies so you went to agencies um, and this is with the liberal arts Degree, which you couldn't do anything, or I couldn't do anything. So you, the the job slots were like Gal Friday job slots, which meant secretary only. You couldn't type or take shorthand. You know. or um, they later had to make it Guy Friday too, but not back then. You know, um, and I went to agencies and. You know, you wore your little black dress with pearls or maybe even gloves, because what you did. And I went on job interviews, and one of them um, was uh, meeting Stan, and he needed a gal Friday. And um, I think the jobs at that time were paid like $60 a week or something, and I took that job because another job I was offered paid 55 it, it, it was like it's a trade place, so that was I figured. Well, it's publishing. I mean, I'd like comics as a kid, but I wasn't looking. I didn't really realize it was a business, you know. So um, the job entailed uh, opening the fan mail, and then gradually, as the fan mail built up, you know, getting making little cards and sending cards to the kids or answering the kids. But the beginning, most of the mail was for, like, Millie the model or Patsy Walker. Um, You know, kids would send in their little designs, and you'd try and match them up with the designs that Stan Goldberg drew for the Millie and Patsy books. And if there was a dress, you'd take out, uh, you know, some kid's name who had done a dress and, you know, write their name. Or, you, you know, just make lists of, you know bathing suit, little Tilly Jones, you know, Tulsa. And um, I remember I put my little cousin's kids' names in and they were very happy. Um, So that was a big part of the job, but then of course superheroes started getting bigger, so there was more male um, from little boys. So um, that was the main job actually, that and calling people to see where their work was. (laughs) The the company was called Magazine Management Company, and that was composed of um, lots of different little offices. There was the comics, which I think was called Marvel at the time, or Timely. It seemed to be interchangeable, the comics, everyone called it. And there were petitions, and there were men's magazines, like Stag and Man's World, um, of that sort of genre. And, and um, there were movie magazine departments, uh, romance magazines, crossword puzzle magazines. Um, magazine management was um, just a huge magazine company, and Martin Goodman owned it. And um, when I went there, uh, the comics were just two little offices petitioned off, and we were right next to the men's magazines. Um that that would be people like Mario Puzo sat there, um, Bruce J. Friedman, um, John Bowers, George Fox, a lot of people who were writing books in their spare time but earning a living and raising their families on on Martin's Goodwill. So, um, and they would sometimes talk a little, a little. Uh, off-color, and Stan didn't like that because he didn't like my hearing it. Yeah. It was all different. This was the early 60s. Yeah. And Stan had a little office with a desk and a, a drawing board and a stool, and there's a little office in front where I had a desk and there was a drawing board, and that was it. in this may be like 63, uh, 64. There were maybe like uh, 10 books, a lot of bi-monthly books. Um, Stan would do everything, uh, marking the pages, making the envelopes. Um, the freelancers would come up and t- chat and get work and bring work in. If they need a production, Saul Brodsky would come up once in a while and sit at the little um, drawing board and do production. Stan Goldberg would come in and do the coloring. It it was, everyone was very pleasant, very happy, happy to have jobs. Things started, I I don't know like the dates, but things started selling better and uh, Martin wanted to move I guess. He wanted to, but the other books were doing well too. So uh, he wanted to move, so we moved from this place at 60th Street, which Actually, I was there the other day. It's where Boyd Chemists is at 60th and Madison, and it's all changed up there, of course, now. It's all very fancy. And uh, we moved to, uh, I think it was 5-something Madison. It was always a Madison, 525 Madison. And then it changed. Stan had his own... Big office. There was an office for myself and Saul Brodsky in one desk, and then there was another office for the for the bullpen, like five, four or five people, Um, and and then all the other um, sections had their offices too. It was still big magazine management um, company, and. Uh, and that was where more fans would come up. So maybe that's about six, five, six. six. I think I remember like um, Marv Wolfman and Len Wein coming up and wanting to get in, but I just couldn't, you know. Sometimes you had to body check them because they were trying to get through the reception door. I remember them, you know. I said, no, if they were real little, you could say Spider Man is out fighting crime or something, and that would work, you know. Even a lot of bigger kids, I think we would work with too. You know, and and um, and I was the one that went out, you know, into the reception area. And um, I forget there was a time we would get letters. Sometimes we would get crank letters. Um, we got one from uh, I don't know, I don't know what they were then. Like white supremacist group in Texas or or something about um, Sergeant Fury and the commandos. He didn't like it that it was a black guy and Jewish guy, Italian guy. Didn't didn't like all that. He said he was coming to New York and he was going to kill all us pinko commies and everything. So, you know, we, we were such big. We didn't know. Call the police. Call, call the, We called the FBI. I remember this. And um, the FBI sent someone over. And they said, Here's the letter. <laughs> and he said, How many people have touched this letter? Oh, about 50, you know. So um, he took the letter and we gave him comics. And then no one wanted to go out anymore. You know, every, everyone thought someone was coming up with a machine gun. We really were sort of naive. Yeah, there was another move actually after that. I don't know why that happened. Maybe Marvel was getting so big. Just Marvel moved to six thirty five Madison into like an office and, and I remember the the mailroom people had to come back and forth with the mail. It was and in that office there was a bigger bullpen and Stan had his own office and Saul and I had our own office. Nothing fancy, but that—that that I forget which office it was when people would, people would start getting coming up. I remember, Alan Al, Al Renee came up. He was a big fan of some part of Marvel. We didn't even know who he was. <laughs> oh yeah, some French car, you know. And-
1: Next up, we've got a series of clips, Flo talking about interacting with the other magazines at Magazine Management, Millie Sharoff, who was in the bullpen, and what the bullpen was doing.
0: Well, hellos, and, you know, sometimes go to lunch with some of the other secretaries, but the group sort of stayed by themselves, and they sort of, like, kidded us, because we were comics. I remember once Mario Puzo tried writing a comic, you you know, just to make some extra money, and he turned it back in the next day, and he said, This is too hard. I'm going back to writing books. And we see what happened. And um, people, like, would say hello, but I think they all thought we were a little strange for some reason. Really? Yeah. Well, she was the one by hand who wrote out the checks, and um, she did everything. She would take the, the vouchers and pay the freelancers, and um, she did every, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is all before computers or anything. It was all by hand. Um, you know, didn't even have Xerox machines. You had to put the artwork in this, and you get them on, on these filmy things that would sometimes burn up because it was too hot and it had to go through a liquid. I forget what you call them. Jack and Steve didn't work there. I mean, maybe they would do a correction or something, but um, no, it, as I recall, it was um, Maury Corimoto, uh Marie Severin. I forget the timeline, I'm not sure, like if John Tataglione was there at some point but that was maybe later. Oh, they would do art corrections. They would uh, paste up letters pages, ads, um, the coloring corrections. Maybe the, the Often the covers were colored in the house because they had to get out. And if Stan Gold, there was a desk like for Stan Goldberg. Or, or, um, by this time, Saul Brodsky had come on staff and he was like, the protection manager is supposed to make sure everything goes out on time, which as now is the bottom line. And it was like, you know, things had to ship on time. Even if there were blank pages. I mean, Martin Goodman. He once said, um, at, at Sparta Printing, it had its own train track, and the trains pulled up, and if the books weren't ready, the trains pulled out, and the worst thing in the world was for the trains to pull out empty without your books, because then they wouldn't get to the distributor, and it's all over. So that was the worst crime, not to have book ship on time. Um, I guess... Maybe uh, artists and writers just didn't seem like such prima donnas as, as they later became. Um, uh, professionals got their work in on time. If someone didn't get their work in on time, um, it was you worried about them. You know, you thought they were sick or something.
1: And of course, an interview with Flo would result in conversations about Stan Lee. Uh, The three questions that are going to be covered in these next clips were James asked if Flo noticed any change in Stan as Marvel, uh, the fortunes, grew. Um, If Stan was stern with freelancers, uh, given deadlines and stuff, and, and the transition of Stan from guy doing everything, as Flo explained, to, uh, as James phrased it, Queen of England, which is to say, not doing everything, becoming a a figurehead.
0: Yeah, Stan was never a down. He was always an upbeat person. Even maybe when sales weren't going well or or books weren't going well, he never. He was always able to separate you know, work from reality or reality from work. Um, it, it's just a, a no-nonsense person, you know, no, not a whiner, not a complainer. If something's wrong, let's fix it. And he'd say, like, you know, with the books, let's change this, let's change that. Um, you know, he and the artist would be in their... The, his little office, which had no door, and then Stan would be jumping all over the place and acting out the plots. And um, he was very fit fellow. That was Saul's job. Yeah, Saul would be stern, and um, and and people did not like. You know, they were happy to have a job, and they were they loved their job. Um, so they tried not to be late. I remember Bill Everett was good. He, he would always have, like, the hamster, ate the work or, um, you know, got left on the subway. was always getting left on the subway and other people. But um, uh, in those days, um, often there were inventory stories. Um, Stan could assign work for a non-book and it could be just put into an, uh, a story that hadn't come in, so now I, I don't think there are inventory stories. Or well, <laughs> Crown Prince, Crown Prince, um, he he had more scripts to write. I guess Roy was there at some point. Denny O'Neill came, Gary Friedrich, but he had to write more scripts, and um, so he would work at home like two days a week, or one day a week, or three days, I forget, a a week. He lived right near the office, so that was easy. And the office would just go on, you know, without him. And the artist would know to come in on the days when he was there. But he never was a snobby person. He was always ready. I, I know I sound like a little Mary Sunshine here, but, you know, if someone was in trouble, he always gave them a break, um you know, on the deadline, or they needed money, he, 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 um, I never saw him angry, gave him the wrong sandwich at lunch, maybe, annoyed, you, you know, but, um, it, it was business, it was business, it, it wasn't like a religion at the moment, at the time,
1: in this next set of clips, Flo addresses the questions of famous people showing up at the office, problem freelancers, uh, favorite freelancers, and least favorite freelancers.
0: Who's famous? Who's famous? It's Harlan Ellison, famous. <laughs> <same. Okay. laughs> It, it, not not much because people um, most of the freelancers worked at home in their basements, their cellars, their attics. They were thrilled to come in and chat with people and maybe go to lunch together. Um, I I always sort of liked when people came in because they were happy and we were happy to get the work and um, they were all pretty witty people. I mean. Um, there's one we used to like when Artie Simic came in, the, uh, all, the letterer, because he was just such a funny guy and he could, um, you know, people had these talents. He he could play the spoons, two spoons. He could just clap them together and make melodies, all these lost skills, you know. And I think his his daughter, Jean, went on to become a letterer too in some universe, you know. So, um, no, we liked that a few didn't come in, like Sam Rosen, the letterer, didn't come in. His brother Joe, who was also a letterer, would bring his work in and out. And that was odd. Everyone thought it was odd that someone didn't want to come to the office just to get out of the house. Oh, I like so many of them. Um, I like Chick Stone a lot. He was always chatty. He's one of the few people that read a newspaper, you know. <laughs> Um, I like Darty Simic, Stan Goldberg. Everyone was very nice to me. At Christmas, I would get like 30 bottles of perfume, which is what they, you gave girls then, which I don't even use. All the guys would get bottles of liquor and the girls would get bottles of perfume. That was it. Actually, no. Everybody was... Happy to be there and happy to have work and they were real nice and they had to be nice to me because I would take their vouchers sometime.
1: These next two clips are Flo answering whether or not the folks at Marvel were friendly with the competition at DC or elsewhere and then addressing whether or not uh, the staff socialized after hours.
0: I didn't know anybody. We didn't know anybody. It was, they were the competition. I mean, it wasn't like, no, I didn't know anybody. It, it, uh, I knew, um, no, afterwards I knew Paul Levitz because um, I guess through Warren perhaps, I don't think through comics. And his dad had a hardware store on Third Avenue, and I seem to remember dropping off stuff at Paul at his father's hardware store. <laughs> that may be fuzzy. I'm not yeah, sure. sure. No, I didn't know anybody. And then if um, people worked for, you weren't supposed to work for the both companies. They would have to use pen names at that time it was completely frowned upon to socialize at work like date or something it it was just familiar You're, you, you know you just didn't date i remember i dated one fellow in the um the men's magazines and it was a big secret you know you had to be very quiet meet somewhere else you know and uh, which probably was the most interesting part you know um but no um I would just go to lunch, maybe with Marie when she was there, or when the secretaries had worked in another department. But mostly, you worked through lunch if it was busy. Um, I mean, once I went to lunch with Chick Stone, and those days. It, drinks were like Manhattans and martinis, these really strong things. And I had a drink and I came back and I was woozy and looping around and Stan was so annoyed that <laughs> Chick had done this, you know. It was just bad form.
1: In this next set of clips, Flo addresses the question as to whether anybody at Marvel is reading the work coming from DC or other competition and also talks about the atmosphere in the office—if and when a freelancer would leave Marvel to go to DC, or a DC creator would come over to work at Marvel—oh,
0: they were aware of what was going on. Martin Goodman was aware of what was going on. He—he um—he—he like—he would see what was selling at DC and sort of root for that. Like I don't know the chronology. Of who came first? But like, what DC had was it Justice League or or something? And and he said, "Hey, team books are doing selling well. I and mean, We should have a team book or something." Uh, oh, I think he he and Stan followed um, what DC had, but mainly they followed the sales figures to see what was selling. And Martin. Um, He was good at coming out with books like in the romance or the um, crossword puzzles or movie magazines that were copies of the real big things that were selling. And some really nice people that went on to um, become better known work there in the movie department. I remember this Patricia Bosworth who's written some... um, uh, bios of people, and um, well, I forget. <laughs> it's a, it's a blank. It was, it was. Well, working at Marvel then, it was more. Which I don't know if it's a part of the work work ethic now. It was the team um, ethic was important. You were part of a team, and you worked very hard. So the company, the team would succeed, and you owed your loyalty to this group. They were paying you. I mean, it's not like now at companies, people complain all the time about everything: the not enough vacation, not enough, you know, free time, no. Just um. Just different, different work ethic. You know not better or worse, just different and and um it was it was a shock when someone left, and it was a coup when someone came over. It was because it was it was more fun us them competition it was like baseball, you know? no, he would just look sad, which made us sad, you know it was a great and it, it was a feeling that. Boy, what a joke! Leaving, heat wonderfully here, going over there, you know there. It, it, it was. I don't know. It, it was just. It's capitalism, competition, and um, we thought we were better than everybody else, and it sort of made you feel good too. No, no face front were on the winning team, et cetera, you know. So um, there was that feeling. I mean, not en- enough to go out and beat them up or anything, but there was that feeling. And I I don't know, I, I have no idea, but I would think like Marvel people, maybe socialize with Marvel people, And although Roy was able to um, go back and forth or, or something. But, but once he came to work at Marvel, I don't think he was friendly with the D.C. people. I, I don't know. He'll tell you if you want to ask.
1: In a few instances, the topic of fans came up. And Flo talked about fans coming up to the office, the growing fandom, uh, and dealing with that as Marvel uh, became Marvel. Marvel.
0: come into the office, because, you know, didn't want people walking in the office, it was a workplace, we work here, and you know. Um, people would come up and I would have to go out and just say, sorry, not, nothing's here. You know, all they would do is maybe get a picture with me or something, bring them a comic book. But um, then uh, people started sending in the fanzines, which was a new thing to us. And, um, you know, people were actually spending time writing these things. I know there were EC fanzines, but EC was, you know, you know up there. That was something special. But um, it, it sort of developed gradually that, that there was such a movement, you know, you know the kids were so interested, and, um, and then a little, I, little media interest you know, for the superheroes I think, I'm not sure. I think the Wall Street Journal was the first one that ever did an article on Stan and the, the books. And um and then we started getting letters from service people, um, and uh college kids, which was so bizarre. we saying, Huh <laughs> you know, what's happening in colleges? They're reading comics. Um and you know, we encouraged it and all and answered them. We sent fourteen million postcards or, or letters back. And um it it was a surprise, I think. You just worked hard and um you know, when the MMMS started, you're working all the time, even on weekends, and it's just, you know, opening these these hundreds of envelopes with dollar bills inside and Throwing all these dollar bills around and, you know, writing their little names on labels and not, ha- not keeping copies of them, because who knew it was more than a, a a one-month phenomenon? Mary Marvel Marching Society, yeah, the little kid. It was a little fan club. I mean, we're getting so many letters. Someone may probably stand... Maybe we should have a little fan club. you got a little card, a little fan club. you got a button that says, button, button. I always say that word wrong. Button. Um, Mary Marvel Matching Society. Probably some stickers and a little record. A little record stand made a script up. And we all went to some little studio. And we had scripts and... Um, they got a, a record of the Mary Marvel Matching Society, of of everybody talking. I'm, um, I might have a copy somewhere. It's like a thirty-three and a third or something, you know, one of those little filmy things. And you know, everyone was talking. Gosh, darn, wow, you, you know. <laughs> and it did very well. And then, I guess it went on and. There were other incarnations of it and other things, but then it was, by that time, it was outside the office. You know, it was big. It's getting big.
1: Along the lines of the fandom getting big, uh, in different ways, the subject of if, how, when anyone at the time in the 60s realized that this stuff was catching on and would have a life beyond there, here, and now, and what the attitude was there uh, towards the material as compared to now, quote-unquote, being the late 90s, early 2000s, when this interview was conducted, where there was, uh, it probably still is, such a commitment to the material that would lead to late nights or genuinely intense feelings or, or whatever it was that, that, you know, people would bring to this stuff that uh, we all grew up with
0: glad that it was doing so well, but uh, at least for myself, didn't, I didn't quite get it, you know, and everyone was being so nice to me, and I was the secretary. <laughs> I said, oh, I don't know, I don't care. I mean, happy for everybody's good wishes, but don't really get it, um, thank you, I mean, that exists to this day. Um, I mean, if it hadn't been for those years at Marvel, I did leave in '68, but that was where I made my friends. So, all my life, my friends have been comic people. And, um, you know, I, leave. I did leave. I had a, a life. and um, But then in the 90s, when I was between things, uh, I was able to get back in, which is how I'm still making the living today. Thought this is great, this is great, the books are selling, we're gonna make more money, we're we're successful. I I don't think I, I can't speak for everybody, but no one really looked ahead that much. Um the big picture was what was happening at the time. People tended to live in the present more and hope the future would be rosy. I mean it wasn't now like where the, the future sort of can be sort of bad. It, um, I, I don't remember anyone ever sitting down and having a conversation about what it would be in, in years to come. Um, nobody seemed to care. I didn't, you know. I thought we tried to live in the present. <laughs> it's hard.
1: Alright, so this next transition's gonna be a little clunky. Uh first up you're gonna hear a an explanation from Flo. So in the course of the interview, uh James recounted hearing a story from George Russos, who was a long time employee at Marvel, colorist, uh about how he had been in these quote unquote true story magazines under a fake name and if Flo knew the story uh behind Matt. So that's the first thing here. will hear. And then uh that's gonna go into uh, Flo talking about uh, leaving Marvel and and why she left when she did.
0: Uh, the the movie magazines mostly. They, I, I have yeah I have at home. I was in a photo spread too. It Was like girl wins wins contest to go to Hollywood, and what they would do they would take you pose in pictures and they would. Put you in the pictures. I have a picture of me talking to Paul Newman out in Hollywood, um, walking on the street, going to my interview. Um, yeah, they, they're very big on that. It saved getting models. George probably thought it was because he was so wonderful that they did that. I, I shared an office with George for many years. Nothing bad. It had been five years, six years, and um, Martin didn't believe in paying, you know, the secretaries that much, because there was, you know, million people to take the job, and it was true. And me, I think I was getting tired of the fan mail, or I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I realized I didn't really have a skill or anything. So um, at one point I just gave notice, and um, uh, everyone was very nice, and Stan understood, and um, I went job hunting again, and um, but I still stayed connected to Marvel, and then later in the '70s um, I worked at Warren Publishing, and that was I got that through the Stan thing.
1: These next set of clips are all Flo talking about her time at Warren Publishing, uh, how she got the job there, um, talking about Warren, which James understood started as a novelty company, so they'll talk about that. That spins out into a story about a monkey, and then it closes out with uh, Flo talking about how Warren, uh, both the person James Warren, the publisher, and the actual company uh, were different than Marvel Comics was.
0: Oh no, no. It's just people know me in the business and Jim Warren, you know, probably thought it'd be great to have someone stand secretary work for him, you know. Um he's still around, Jim Warren. I hear from him occasionally. <laughs> I I don't know that, but um I know that the captain company, which was what I did, I, I was sort of ran that and ordered the toys and did the little ads and stuff from um, um, it was you know all these movies and books about monsters, posters, rubber spiders, rubber legs. it was great stuff, oh yeah, one of the items was a little monkey you could order for like i don't know thirty forty dollars, and it was what's called a drop ship item. We didn't store them but we would take the orders and send the order to whoever had them, and they would ship them. Well, one, one time someone returned a monkey to our offices, they, you know, they're not toilet trained and the lady was complaining about that and she turned them to our offices and there's a monkey hopping around and, um, you know, saying, my God, disease, you know. <laughs> We didn't know then what they could carry, but but um, that happened. And they're also like sea monkeys. You put the little things in the water and the little brine shrimp that sea monkeys and six-foot spider and not Spider-Man, six-foot Frankenstein posters. I mean, and Vampirella, that was the big thing. I, but I digress, I'm on to Warren, sorry. I think you know people own their business. They can act differently than when they're working for someone. And he, he was, you know, a little sharper and brusker to art artists or writers. Um, and also, he he knew how he wanted things. You know, wasn't like laid back. I mean, Stan had tons of energy, but he really had a laid back quality too. Stan was very even, even.
1: After she left Marvel in the 1970s, Flo went out west and she also self-published a comic called Big Apple Comics. And these next two clips are about those things. First, about Big Apple Comics, and then her time traveling west. With the very last clip addressing whether she wore... Uh, bell-bottoms and beads and all that stuff.
0: Oh, nice for to mention. <laughs> there was in California, what that happened was um, I left Marvel in 68, I worked for a few years at a trade publishing company, um, American Petroleum Institute, we did books about how the oil was really good for the birds, you know, it oiled their feathers, you know. It was, But I learned a craft, I learned copy editing, proofreading, so I was grateful. And then it was the time a lot of New York people in comics, especially underground comics, Trina Robbins, Kim Deitch, um, Mich- Roger Breen, Michelle Wrightson, uh, Wrightson now, um, were going out to California. And I was friends with them, and I thought, oh, I wanted to go too. So after the Petroleum Institute moved to Washington to be closer to the senators, um, uh, I, I went out to California with a stop in Oregon and lived out there a year or two. Um, and the, the undergrounds were going great then. That was early 70s out there. But after a couple of years, I realized it wasn't for me, you know. So I came back, and um, I thought it wouldn't be nice to do an underground comic about New York. So over the years, so this is 74, 75, I I asked people I knew to do things, paid them very little, very little. And so that was like 75 maybe or something, and that... That was wonderful. A few of the stories got reprinted, and if I got any money I gave it to the artists and gave them their artwork back and all. So that was fun. I enjoyed that. But you know, it was a lot of work, (laughs) and I realized I'm I'm a lazier person than I realized. At that time I was working at Warren, and he let me store the comics there and ship from there, so he was a big help too. And, you know, that was great. That was a great time. And I think after that, I didn't have to prove anything professionally to anybody anymore. So I've taken life easy since then. Oh, it was wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> I was young. Yeah. Um, it was a great time. The 70s were just great. I mean, the 60s were really the 70s to me. And, um,. It was just a wonderful blur of wonderful people, good times, and um, still
1: alive.
0: (laughs) Yes, I thought I was with some people. We thought the rural life might be interesting, and you know, communes and that kind of stuff. But it wasn't to me, you know. So some of us went down to San Francisco, which was more. At, at at first, we lived um, outside the city in uh, this little, little Point Richmond, it was called. It was just across the bay or something. But then we moved into San Francisco, lived in the Mission then. And um, it was great. I worked at Gary Allington's comic book store for like 50 cents an hour. I did try to get a real job, but I just didn't have any luck. And, uh, I don't know, it was the time, I, I guess, um, after a couple of years, I guess I missed the Eastern family. And I did. I was adorable. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I have pictures.
1: And for the last clip, I'm going to play, this is Flo answering the question about if she can remember a worst day at Marvel.
0: I I don't have memories of the worst day. I mean, the worst thing was having, working so hard that you just crawl home and fall into bed, you know, when I was a young person then. I mean, now I could do it. It's no problem, just being, uh, no, I don't remember ever saying anything off key or, or off. And that, I don't know. A good day was the day when you got the books out. It wasn't like your life, your job then, even at Marvel, wasn't supposed to be your life. It was, you're supposed to have a life outside of there. So that when you left, you'd go and you'd have friends or socialize. Um... Your job was not supposed to be the most important thing in your life. Life was. And um, I think that changed. That changed. Um, So I don't, I I just, maybe it's through the the, the, the haze of years, but um, I just remember it being a wonderful first job that I was very lucky to have and working like a dog and... um, you know, even now sometimes I bump into people and they say I sent them a letter or I talked to them. Ralph goes on 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 and on, on about um when he called the office when he was a little kid and I answered a question ab- about something, you know, or um or or those things. And and I mean I'm I'm grateful but I'm astounded. Um astonished by it, and I appreciate all the goodwill, but as I say, I mean, that's nice, that's nice, but it doesn't, um, it wasn't my life, it was a wonderful part of my life, but, um, I'm sorry, it was like 35, 40 years ago, and I've gone on to do other things, and I'm just grateful, you know, now that I'm still making a living and all, so I'm grateful to Stan and to marvel and and all um, but it's not the pinnacle of my being um although I'm so grateful for it, and it was just happenstance and um I'm a lucky person
1: and uh and that's. Those are the clips. You know, it's interesting to listen back on all that. Because as time wore on and the culture at Marvel changed, uh, she certainly noticed. Um, she talked about being tired of talking about the old days and talking about Stan. I mean, you can hear it a little bit in that last clip. Um, I remember one time she talked about being annoyed at people wanting to take selfies with her. From what I could tell, Flo liked to connect with people As people, Not as a comic celebrity, not as Stan's secretary, not as somebody who was there at the beginning of Marvel. She wanted to talk to people. And I am very grateful for the opportunity I had to connect with her, to get to know her, to randomly bump into her on the street as she was smoking a cigarette or walking to the post office uh, or have lunch. And the last time I saw Flo was at lunch. Uh, Flo, myself, Chris Gerusso, and Klaus Jansen got together for lunch. Uh, and she had a habit, and I know this because people talked about it at her memorial, of bringing things that she had gathered over the years that were in her apartment as gifts to people. Uh, so she brought all of us at lunch gifts. I know she brought me a Felix the Cat piggy bank that's like the shape of a can of cat food. Because she knew I liked cartoons and cartoony things. I know she brought Chris Rousseau some toy robots. Because he liked Transformers. I cannot remember what she brought Klaus. My apologies, Klaus. I gave her a copy of Pix. Which I had self-published at the time. And Klaus very generously paid for lunch. It was a genuinely great afternoon. It was awesome. And uh, some days later... Flo gave me a call and left me a voicemail.
0: Greg, Greg, it's Flo calling. You're out and about. Good, good. Movement is good. Um, I'm just calling. I want to to thank you for, for social directing that wonderful lunch. I had such a good time. We are all such good company, and everybody chatted with everybody else. Perfect, Joe, and um, it was nice being treated, and um, it, it was just swell.
1: She was right; it was swell, and Flo was swell, to use her words. Um, a really, a really great lady, more than, more than Stanley's secretary. That is for certain. Thank you for listening. Thank you to James Felder, Brian Smitty Smith, and Craig Chin for the interview in 2004. Also, thanks to Craig Chin for the theme song for this show. You can learn more about him at rudeanagrams.com. All past episodes of this show live at stuffsaidshow.com. You can go back and listen to all that. For more about me, I'm at HatterEntertainment.com, H-A-T-T-E-R-Entertainment.com. That's all the stuff I have left to say. See you next time.